Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and this episode is focused on privacy and our increasingly digital reality, but with specific reference to children's rights. My guest, Baroness Biban Kidron, has been a member of the British House of Lords since 2012. Previously a filmmaker, she's an ongoing advocate for children's rights in the digital world, including in her role as chair of the Five Rights Foundation, which exists to make systemic changes to that digital world to ensure it caters for children and young people by design and default. Now, I first met Biban through my work in the International Grand Committee, a collection of over 10 parliaments through which we've been focused on privacy, big data, and democracy. Here in Canada, we now have one bill tabled in C11 to strengthen our privacy framework, and we expect a new bill to be tabled in the coming months to strengthen online safety and to better address online harms. The privacy legislation with which I'm more familiar doesn't focus on children's rights at all at the moment, so I reached out to Biban to join me and better inform my work knowing that the bill will come to my committee. In reading about her before this conversation, I learned that she was a filmmaker for many years before politics, and learned that she's the director of Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, the second Bridget Jones movie, and a film that I'm more familiar with, To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. Interestingly, it was her last documentary film in real life that ultimately led her to commit her time since to children's rights online. So not only is it a really important issue that B-Ban is raising, but she herself is just a really interesting person. Biman, thanks so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure. I have said in the past in conversations here in Canada that we are increasingly living our lives online and that our laws need to reflect that reality. It is more true for kids growing up online than anyone. So how do our laws need to change? Well, I think that there's, there's two pieces of it. One is we've got to start applying them in the digital environment. I think one of the things that exemplifies the digital environment is its refusal to actually meet societal expectations. And that includes, you know, the responsibilities to children. So the way that I look at it and the way that Five Rights frames it is in three buckets. The first is data protection and privacy. And we've actually got to see that as standalone. Uh, The second is child-centered design, which means if you imagine the child as a user, how would you build your system? How would you build your product and service? And the third bit is the application of children's rights, because, of course, children's rights are not specific to any environment. And in fact, uh, next week, the Committee on the Rights of the Child is actually going to launch Uh, the general comment on the digital world. And it says how children's rights apply and should be applied uh, to the digital world. And it's actually quite a radical document because it it gets right down to children's rights and algorithms. So basically, the answer to your question is start applying the rules that we have spent hundreds of years developing to the analog world, to the digital, because it's one and the same now. Let's walk through those three buckets and starting with data protection and privacy. We have a privacy bill here in Canada that is at second reading, but is, is likely to come to committee quite soon. It does not really reference children's rights in any in any way. There's there's no specific way that the legislation says this is how it's to apply broadly, but here's how it's to narrowly also apply to children in a, very, in a different way or an, an enhanced way. In the UK, you have thought through these questions, I think, a little bit differently than we have to date. How should we be thinking about privacy differently as it relates to kids? So I, I think there's two parts to that. I mean, I think the first thing is, if, if I go to your second point first, which is 
that actually we were in exactly the same position in the UK. We were we were bringing in in, in at the beginning of 2018, we were bringing in GDPR into UK law for a post-Brexit world. And I looked at that legislation and uh, the, there was no provision for kids. I mean, there was some recital 38, which said, you know, they, they, they should have special consideration, you know, because of the development capacity. And then it moved on. And I thought actually not good enough. And in fact, what the, the mechanism we used, which may be indeed the right mechanism for Canada is that I introduced uh, an amendment to the bill and it set out that the, the, the data protection regulator had to set out a code that dealt specifically with children's data protection. And that code, which is the age appropriate design code, is actually in law now. It's part of the act. And the code that has, has been drawn up is going to be finally implemented. There was a 12-month transition period on the 3rd of September this year. So it's been an enormously long journey, but the code itself is very robust. And, And what it does is it puts out 15 different provisions that actually together, they're interdependent, they're cumulative, but together they actually transform the digital experience of a child. And I think that was that was the sort of technical way that we got around the fact that there was no provision for children. I think to your bigger point about what do children need, uh, hopefully the, the code goes a long way to, to explaining that. But I think that really what they need can be sort of summarized very briefly. First of all, they need their privacy by default. They need it designed into the system. You cannot ask a seven, an eight, a 13, or even a 17-year-old child to go around changing things and switching things and, and, and reading terms and privacy notices and so on. I mean, that's absolutely ludicrous. So first of all, they have to be given it by default. The other thing is we have to stop thinking of a child as someone who's 13. That is a result of a poor piece of law from the year 2000. Children are not adult at 14. And so you've got to actually insert the idea of children as a user group up to the age of 18, just as their rights as under the convention suggest. And then the last bit is we've got to stop thinking about children as users of services and products directed at children. That is absolutely untrue. They spend most of their time in places that are designed for adults. Yeah, you know, albeit, you know, Amazon or or Facebook or whatever, you know, it's still designed for adults. And moreover, a lot of impacts on children actually don't even require their involvement. And so if you think about facial recognition, you think about the bus pass, you think about fingerprints uh, to get into the lunch queue, you think about AI of exam systems or the justice system or distribution of resources by local councils, you know, actually the digital world impacts on children even without their consent. So you have to think about privacy from a structural perspective and you have to think about it as a design problem. And and just to finish that thought, you know, one of the major platforms said to me only a few weeks ago, said, do you realize you've invented the first safety by design uh, regime in the world? That's what the code is. And I went, well, of course it is. Of course it is. Because if data is where the value is, then follow the money. 
Yeah, data protection is what determines how things are designed. Our proposed act does consider sector-specific codes of practice in a way that, that will be established going forward. So it's not a far leap in some ways to say, let's have the privacy commissioner stand up a uh, code of practice specifically as it relates to kids and age-appropriate design code. I'm, I'm always glad to speak to someone in the UK about privacy and information practices because your information commissioner happens to be a Canadian and is brilliant at her job. When we look through that age-appropriate design code, the privacy by default, I've always thought should be a, a rule applied much more broadly, but at a minimum for children. And I also like the idea of preventing automated location tracking. And when it comes to this notion of child-centered design, the Tristan Harris idea of these platforms and devices being designed to maintain our attention and and to nudge us in a way that constantly encourages, you know, addictive behavior in a way. When we think of children and children-centered design, it's about moving away from that too, one would think. It is. And and it absolutely is. And I think that the, there's two particular things that I want to pick out in addition to what you've said, which is, first of all, the data minimization principle. If you don't take it, you can't abuse it, yeah? And actually, if you don't take it, then you don't actually automatically need to involve a child in endless attention, in endless networking, in endlessly, you know, because so much of it is for the attention economy that actually if you're actually saying, oh, okay, kids, we won't take their attention, you know, there are a whole lot of things that follow from that. I think the other thing that that was a big battleground in the UK, and I think it's really worth noting, that it says you can't profile a child to give them material that's detrimental, Now, that's right outside of any question of liability, non-liability, freedom of expression, any of those issues. What it means is you can't take a particular child's data, search, use, and then use that information to send them self-harm, you know, body stuff, pornography, things that we know that, that are not good for them. And in the code, it says not what I think isn't good for them. Or what you think, we may be perfectly sensible, but we may be horribly off off kilter. What what we mean and what we say in the code is publicly, formally published information. So, you know, whether it is uh, by the Department of Health or whether it's Department of Education and so on. So I, I think that, you know, by taking a child-centered approach, you actually get really practical really quickly. And the magical piece of all of this is that there's very little that needs to be invented. Mainly, you have to switch a few things off. When we think of challenges that are a little bit tougher in so far as they run up against freedom of expression. So we think of the right to be forgotten as an example. We, in our proposed act, we have a right of disposal, and it's pretty straightforward. It's where I provide information to a service provider. I can then ask for that information to effectively be deleted and removed. Seems straightforward as a matter of consent and control. But the GDPR goes further. How do we ensure that the information as we, you know, as my kids grow up online, that the information that is posted about them, the stories around them, the mistakes they potentially make, or the lives that they live up to the age of 18 or into their early 20s, that those stories don't follow them around the rest of their life. Is 
Is that a component of, of the children's rights framework as, as you think through it? So it's, it's, it's not part of the code, but I do think it is absolutely part of a children's rights framework. And I think that, that it's a very difficult thing because we always start from where we are. And at the moment, in plain sight, we seem to have somehow agreed that it is okay to spread at will any piece of information, irrespective of its veracity or level of damage, as far and wide as you can in order to encourage really fundamentally advertising. But let's just call it more broadly commercial business. Yeah. Now, that's a pretty extraordinary thing that we've come to. So when we have this discussion, I think we have to first of all just go, hang on, what world are we living in? Yeah. Because I think that once you start questioning whether that is in itself a genius idea, I think you also have to start asking what the responsibilities of business are for the health and safety and veracity of their service. And then you get into some sort of much more practical ideas about supply chain. And, you know, if you can make money out of it, you have to have a technical system that, that can retract it. That if, you, if it forms part of your data, that you have to have a way of retrieving it, you know. And then you get into these really, really practical ideas, you know, that which people will go, oh, no, no, no. But they're not anything to do with freedom of speech. They're to do with how much profit margin, how much work goes into, you know, the safety, the retraction, the moderation. And maybe, just maybe, as we move forward, we will actually say, do you know what, we would like them to do a little bit more checking before they spread, yeah, rather than just spread what is popular, and they know not what is in there, in the digital packet, that they spread. So I think there's a whole kind of conversation here that goes on. But I think in the meantime, there is an absolute right. And in fact, you know, we were told, we've been told many times that any piece of regulation will sort of ultimately be the death of the internet. And one of the ones that we were told was the right to be forgotten. It hasn't been the death of the internet. It seems that everybody's using it in Europe. And we've had the right to be forgotten for some time. I think that it's problematic, but all forms of justice are problematic. And I think that at least the whole right to be forgotten sits in a justice regime that we recognize as belonging to all of us, rather than the freedom of speech thing, which sits in a justice system that belongs to Mark Zuckerberg. And In the Canadian context, and I think elsewhere around the common law, there is a tort of the public disclosure of private and embarrassing facts, these facts that would be detrimental if disclosed about me, that would cause me embarrassment and that have no public interest value. Now, mm -hmm. unlikely that as a sitting politician, there's information that shouldn't be disclosed about me as far as it goes. But for most others, you would think that the bar would be set quite high, that if there's a private embarrassing fact that is then made public, that would be of, of concern and, and there ought to be uh, remedy there. And there is at common law, in a way, I, when I think of the right to be forgotten, I think of it through that lens of ensuring that we are codifying this right and making sure we're formalizing processes and not forcing people to head off to court in, in every case. It's challenging when it runs up against freedom of expression and people have different views, which is why speaking to you about children's rights, 
it does occur to me when I look at the Canadian legislation, which does not have a right to be forgotten, I think, well, surely we can do this at a minimum for kids. I mean, absolutely. And I think that we have all sorts of concepts about, you know, criminal responsibility, about uh, development, about even about parental responsibilities. I mean, you know, and we also have the fact that they are using services which they have got contractual relationships with, but they're not allowed to be in contractual relationships. Right, exactly. You know, and then ultimately you've got services that <clears throat> actually know their sexuality, their immigration status, their location, their friends network, whether they like red or blue trainers. They know all of this, yeah, but they are not treating them according to their age, i.e. how can they know all of this? They can even tell, you know, your your gait and your height and your, you know, and whether you got asthma enough or not. You know, it is actually preposterous, this idea uh, that, 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 that we can't treat kids differently. And I think that once there are more benefits to being treated like a kid, you'll also see a much bigger take up of kids actually, even in self-declaration situations, declaring their age truthfully. Because actually, a lot of kids want a better digital world. They, they're, they're not happy with how it is. And I think they feel, you know, I mean, I can't speak for all kids, but we recently did a survey of 700 children, over 700 children, 28 countries, and what was surprising was not the differences in what they said, but the similarities in what they said. And why was it similar? Was it because, you know, and they were literally, I mean, you know, street children in one place and kids with three devices in their bedroom in another. And, you know, I mean, really vastly different children. But the reason they had the same views was because they're using the same five services, right? Their experience is not determined by their context or by their actions, their experience is determined by the design of the service, yeah? Going to the Tristan Harris point, you know? And we're doing a piece of research work here. Um, in fact, I just came uh, from discussing it with the researchers and it's called Pathways. And again, it looks at what are the design pathways that children follow? Why are they seeing what they're seeing? We imagine it's because they themselves are doing X, Y, or Z. But X, Y, or Z is joined with what the algorithm is doing to them, what the service wants you to do, what the user journey is determined to be. And the outcomes are really shocking. And when we think through that idea of a better online experience, privacy data protection is one part of it. But there is also an online safety bill in the UK. And we have had discussions here in Canada. I've heard the Minister of Heritage stand up in the House of Commons and talk about requiring platforms to take down certain harmful content, likely in the first instance here in Canada, at least only illegal content. But the UK rules have gone a bit further than that, to my knowledge, in the sense of not simply taking existing illegal content, but establishing a broader duty of care that may capture other activities. What should policymakers and decision makers be thinking through as we think through online safety beyond data protection? If I could ask Canadian politicians to do two things, yeah, if I could beg Canadian politicians to do two things, they would be, first of all, think about the design of it, not just the content. And what I mean is 
What behavior does it drive? Why do you see the content that you see? How is that content being chosen for you? You know, do not think of harm, you know, think of risk, think upstream, think of what the risks are, yeah? And then mitigate the risks. And I'll give you two really good examples. First of all, in fact, there's been a change literally this morning here, but until yesterday, 80% of all social media in the UK had the facility to introduce a strange adult to a child. And if you say that, people kind of eyebrows go up and go, that's not right. Yeah. Why are we doing that when we sell children, stranger danger, don't get in a car, don't talk, da, 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 da. But on, on social media, we do. And then I say, well, quick ad, people you may know. Da, 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 da. What do you think they're doing? They're algorithmically, yeah, doing that. And then a lot of them have direct messaging, yeah? So then that adult can direct message them and take them off into a private space. You know, why are people worrying about adult content only at this end when they're actually mechanisms that allow that at this end? And, and honestly, I could do that trick for popularity metrics, for targeted advertising, for all sorts of uh, data breaches and so on, the design of it, yeah? So so my big thing is say, please, child-centered design, safety by design, what that really means is, is actually thinking about the 360 of the service and what risks it poses and also, very, very importantly, the cumulative risk. So I just said introducing private messaging. What about popularity metrics, et cetera? We have a very good uh, thing on our website, actually. It's called Risky by Design, and people should take a look at it because it explains how, how risk can add up. So my second thing is please put into your legislation that companies have to do risk assessment, child risk assessment, and then mitigate. And it's really extraordinary because I spent eight years doing this. And in those eight years, I have spoken to, you know, scores, scores of engineers and scores of UX designers and and people who actually build the system. I don't think I've ever been in a room or on a call or on a, where the first time I've met them, they haven't said, I've never thought about it that way. Some of it is known, but carries on because it's driven by considerations of the bottom line, yeah? Some of it is thoughtless and careless and unknown. And so if you start with a a risk assessment, a child risk assessment of a service, you actually start by surfacing what the problems are. Once you've surfaced what the problems are, A, you can mitigate, and B, you can understand that someone's failed to mitigate. And C, a service can finally say, do you know what? There is everything in my service is literally unsuitable for a child because, for example, we're a dating service. Yeah. Therefore, I must take efforts to make sure children are not using it. So there are so many things you can do before you block kids out. And there are so few occasions where you really need to block kids out. But actually, a risk assessment from a, from a political point of view, what other industry do we let just pollute the place? hurt people, put them in danger without any recourse. 
And this is one that does. That notion of a child risk assessment, it forces companies to turn their minds to these considerations in a way that, as you say, in many cases, they simply haven't. It also provides a, a level of transparency to say, here are the challenges with your service, and these are then the challenges that need to be addressed. Beyond mandating child risk assessments, to get at that first point of the design of it, not just the content, does the legislation in the UK move from requiring child risk assessments to forcing the companies to do something about it? Yes. And that is going to be, this is going to be the subject of my next year, exactly where that dial falls. But there is going to be a design framework. And I would say this, that we are working, Five Rights is working uh, with the IEEE, and we've got a standard that we're developing that hopefully will be available, you know, shortly in the months, shortly. And and others, you know, Australia has a has a e-safety commissioner, has a safety by design framework. So, you know, it is bubbling up around the world. It is not mysterious. And, but yes, I mean, there has to be minimum standards and the things that one declares one's going to do on a voluntary basis have to be done. You can't declare you're going to moderate and then fail to moderate and not be held accountable. I'm actually very for, you know, regulation regimes that set out a floor. I'm not very keen on ones that set out a ceiling. I think people, you know, there should be minimum standards and everyone should be responsible to those minimum standards. And perhaps the real point that I would like to make here is that a lot of the tech companies, you know, publicly at least, privately they're much more reasonable, but publicly make a lot of false problems like, you know, every service is different and so on, so on. So on. Actually, you know, I, I spend a, a great deal of my time and possibly too much of my dreaming hours thinking about different features of design. And they repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. You know, you cannot make a world that is 100% safe. We shouldn't even have that aspiration. But the egregious risk at such scale with so little sort of attention is actually a generational injustice. And I have to say a profound failure of people like you and I who sit within legislative bodies. It's astonishing once you start thinking about why we allow companies to drive kids to add friends because being popular in public is a huge social necessity or why we allow Apple and Android to have app stores that say games are suitable for three plus, but after you download them, you can see they actually have age restrictions of 16. Why do we let (laughs) companies take information from kids who are accessing mental health services and sell it to third-party advertisers. I mean, it is so egregious that actually we should be reflecting not on what the problem is of getting it done, but on how we let it get here and actually have a new point zero. And a new point zero is unless there's a really good reason to do otherwise, then the rules should apply on and off. And let them fight for their exceptionality rather than us fight for our rights. There's a letter I have reviewed recently. You are a signatory to it. It's in the Canadian context, though, 
calling for action by way of C11, our, our privacy bill, but also we don't have yet a number to it. It's not been tabled in the house, but the coming online harms or online safety bill, you've signed it alongside a number of children's rights organization here in Canada and internationally, and a, a couple of really thoughtful academics here in Canada on, the, on these issues too. One piece of the ask as it relates to online safety is akin to what's happening in the UK in relation to this statutory duty of care, the ability of a regulator to create statutory codes of practice. We had commissions struck through this public policy forum here in Canada, really bright commissioners, one past Supreme Court Chief Justice, another individual who is at Columbia, and they called for a duty to act responsibly on platforms. And I don't know that the government's going to get there, but but one challenge to these conversations around duty of care and duties to act responsibly, are there examples that we can point to, to frame the conversation less abstractly, that we can say, this is a way that the statutory duty of care is going to address a problem online that our current rules are unable to address and that we want to be changed. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could point it to you today so you could sort of flip it into Canadian law tomorrow and and that would be wonderful. But I think if I put it this way, I think as a result of the Digital Services Act in Europe, as a result of the online harms, uh, online safety bill in the UK, And some of the work that people like Five Rights are doing, you know, sort of in the civic space, like standards and frameworks and so on, I think that you will see a sort of consensus build about what good looks like. But I think in the first instance, I would take you back to the concept of a child impact assessment. Because actually, once you know what the risk is, it's actually quite easy to get to know what the answer is. So if I give you back my example about introducing strange adults to children, you kind of go, no, don't do that. Yeah, Yeah? sure. So number one of our new framework for the regulator is uh, companies must not... (laughs) must not introduce strange to adults to children, but only allow adults that, that the child voluntarily uh, chooses to follow to message them. You know, and actually it's a lot simpler. I'm not saying it's easy, but actually it's a lot simpler when you keep it practical. And I think that the only people who who win by making this a sort of a theoretical or a ideological battle between privacy and safety, between children and adults and so on. I mean, for example, the idea that adults have any privacy to protect is preposterous, yeah? And actually, the the idea that we've demonized, you know, government, the idea that government should have no role because they are big brother without actually acknowledging the big brother-ness of the tech sector, it, it, it means the debate is, is, is useless. The debate is useless because there is no level playing field of power. And, and I think that the one thing that I sort of specifically came up in the Canadian context is the way that, that your trade bill, you know, the Mexican-US trade bill, yeah. brought in lack of liability for the tech companies. So when then you want to go to Pornhub, who are showing, you know, rape videos uh, and using hacked material of underage children, 
and you have no power to deal with it. I mean, you've got to start asking yourselves the question whether you're in the right place, whether you're starting in the right place. Because if a nation's responsibility is to protect its citizens, you know, that's not just if someone bombs Toronto. That's actually those citizens that are being abused and violated by Pornhub. Yeah. And you cannot give away that power. So I think that that even though I'm now talking in abstract terms, what I'm saying is, actually, please, can we go back to basics? Can we go back to practice? Can we see what the risks are? Can we eradicate risks? Can we see what our responsibilities are? Can we insert them into our legislation? And actually, it's a much smaller task because there are many steps. There are many levers. There are many tools and we will make less mistakes. I spoke to one privacy researcher in Canada a, a while ago now, but he said the public has been so concerned about Big Brother that they've allowed Little Sister to do whatever mm. they wanted. And probably right as it relates to private companies and, and big tech and more. I, I do struggle when, when we look at content specifically. Your example of directing young people, children to connect with adults it seems like an obvious thing that should be changed. Having reviewed the Digital Services Act and looking at the UK's framing of online harms, there are still challenges to harmful but not illegal content. And so when we look at that Section 230 intermediary liability protection, in the Canadian context, at least, I think most contexts, if it's criminal behavior, if it's illegal content that a platform has notice of, we can force those platforms to take it down and impose liability if they don't take it down. So there is a way forward as it relates to criminal, illegal content. Mm. Where it relates to harmful but not illegal content, which is a, a much more difficult area running up against freedom of speech, mm. it's interesting. We had the very first International Grand Committee that I, it was in London and Richard Allen, the VP of Facebook at the time, I don't know if he's still, I think he's one of your colleagues in the House of Lords. He's maybe no longer with Facebook, I'm not sure. But at the time, he he says, well, you know, if it's hate speech or if it's illegal, we take it down. If it's very close to that line, maybe the algorithm shouldn't promote it. And you, you think, well, obviously it shouldn't promote it. Obviously it shouldn't do that. And I, there are challenges though with, sifting through exactly what that kind of content is and forcing takedown or forcing liability at a minimum though to to bracket out some of these challenging conversations that the minimum expectation that minimum standard that you talk about it seems to me that the minimum standard ought to be transparency and that this notion of child impact assessments makes sense to me well algorithmic impact assessments make sense too and to say how is your platform promoting content we don't need to look under the hood entirely to understand exactly how your algorithm works. There are engineers at Google that don't understand how the algorithms work in their entirety. So how is a, a lawmaker like me going to understand? I don't need to understand it. I just need to understand what are the inputs fundamentally and what are the what are the outcomes here? And if the outcome is that white nationalist propaganda is being promoted in your newsfeed, mm. that's an outcome we need to know about because that's a problem. And if you're pumping out that content, well, as a matter of broadcasting ethics and, and social media standards, that's something we, we should know about and we should be concerned about. And transparency at a minimum should be an expectation. I want to challenge you and say, transparency is not enough. 
And I'm going to pick up on the example you gave. Uh, transparency is really important. Uh, we want it, but we have to have accountability also. And 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 there's so many parts to what you've said, and it, it could be a whole conversation of its own. But but if I say at a minimum, and I pick up on your far right point, so I think it's 64 percent. But forgive me if it's wrong. It's in the 60s somewhere. 64 percent of far right content that is clicked upon is recommended to that user by Facebook. They are not searching for it. They've been recommended it. That is not a question of free speech. That is a question of driving belief, driving behavior, and uh, sort of encouraging a narrow worldview, right? Number two and these are Facebook stats. These are not me having a go at Facebook. You know, they also say that those things that are at the edge of legal illegal is where they get most, you know, engagement. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's more uh, sensational, more eyeballs, more clicks and more profit. Absolutely. And then the third thing, which I think is particularly interesting, and I did not understand this until uh, quite late last year, actually, which is for many, many, many forms of content. Facebook don't know what they have. They don't have a label. They don't bother to label. They just send what's popular. Yeah. So that absolutely means that they they take away responsibility for what they spread. And in all those different ways, yeah, you have a company that is absolutely taking no responsibility for causing sort of havoc if you like, right. <laughs> uh, in society. And you go, hang on a minute, whose freedom of speech is that? So right. if I could encourage, there, there is transparency and there is spread and there is hosting. And I actually support their right to host whatever they like. But where I there's promotion, not- there should be accountability. Exactly. And I think that until we get this as a three-act picture, a three-act narrative, host spread, (laughs) you know, and then ultimately, you know, what we take down and what we don't take down and what's in the law and what's that, we're never going to get this right. Because nobody, you know, nobody should be tackling this from it's all gone around the world afterwards. I mean, that's the Christchurch problem. Yeah, it's gone around the world. And then we're worrying about taking it down. Yeah, they can host what they like. But if they promote it, they spread it, they recommend it, they rank it, they push it, it, they're responsible. Done. Well, it's a good place to end. I wanted to ask you about your film career. My, my staff, they asked me to close the conversation by telling you thanks for everything. And I was like, I, I don't know. But it, you have led a very interesting career, commercial films, documentary films, and, and now a Baroness focused on children's protections. Yeah. Well, you know, all, all roads are good. So long as they're walking in the right direction. Um, I, you know, I don't really know, um, you know, how to explain it to an outsider. But, but when I made my documentary in real life, and it was about teenagers and the internet, I realized in a light bulb, light bulb moment, that actually what was wrong with the digital world for children was that they were being treated as adults. We designed a world And then we said, okay, kids, you can come in and we're going to just treat you like adults. And all their problems stem from that. And it's totally inappropriate. It's, it's, it's rights violating. It's a, it's a generational injustice. It's absolutely wrong. And, and I had a moment. I I had a moment that I, 
that I have been unable to to walk back from. And I did sacrifice my career to it. And I do do this full time. And and I don't regret a moment of it. I mean, it's it's sort of quite weird to give up your your well your career as a film director just when it became fashionable to have women uh, directing. <laughs> I don't know how I managed that. I was you know I was I was around when there was only five of us, and 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 now there's now there's a lot of opportunity. I'm out the picture, but you know what? It, it's a good life, and uh, and. And I think we're going to win this debate. And I really hope you and your colleagues in Canada are, are going to be fellow travelers in this one. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, I, I also appreciate when I looked at your filmography, I, 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 could, see, I could see the thread of, of issue-based advocacy even among your commercial films. And it, while it's an odd career in some ways to move from film to politics, it, it makes sense when you've always been focused on the issues. So I, all that's to say, thanks for everything. <laughs> Pleasure. Enjoy. Thanks for joining me on this episode. I learned something new about my staff, Andy, as well, that Tawang Fu Thanks for Everything Julie Newmar is a favorite of his, and I'm going to ensure I raise issues around children's rights online in my parliamentary work reviewing C11. As always, please leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing. Subscribe at uncommons.ca, and otherwise, until next time. <laughs>